millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the award-winning Iraqi journalist and author Haith Abdul-Ahad to discuss Iraq 20 years on from the U.S. invasion, and in particular, his new book, A Stranger in Your Own City, which charts life in Iraq from the eight years' war with Iran to the American invasion and to the Arab Spring, and from there to ISIS and to the present day, whereas Lizzie Porter wrote in an essay for the most recent issue of Prospect, even though the worst of the violence is over, Iraqi citizens are struggling with floundering economy, widespread corruption in government, weak institutions, and a lack of opportunity. Wraith is an amazing reporter. I worked with uh, Wraith at The Guardian. Uh, he won the Orwell Prize in 2014, the Martha Gellhorn Prize, the James Cameron Prize, every prize going because he was one of the uh, bravest and most distinguished chroniclers of not only that war, but all the wars in the re region. So welcome, Wraith. It's lovely to see you again. I suppose I should begin just by asking you to over uh, uh, an overall description of what you were trying to do with this book, which I know was a long time in making because I went to your publishing party last night and learned that it was years in the making. 14 years, yes, so more been, than a you've decade. You've been thinking about this book for a long time. What, what are you trying to do with it? So, you know, when I grew up in Iraq, when I was, you know, I lived in Baghdad. I never rarely left Baghdad until I was 28. We were fed this narrative that Iraq went back 5,000 years of continuous civilizations, that Saddam was the recent manifestation of this 5,000 years that started with Babylonian Assyrians ended not ended with Saddam, but Saddam was the latest. And then there was a cut, and that cut was the 2003 war. And then suddenly there is a new narrative, and this narrative says Iraq was made of Kurds, Sunnis and Shia, who've been locked into this eternal uh, violent struggle. And these two narratives, both of them, of course, were wrong, and both were false. But the last 20 years of civil wars, not only in Iraq, but the rest of the region, is the result of these two narratives clashing against each other. This is what I wanted to write about, to write about how my country was and how it ended and why this happened and where is the... Where is, was it Saddam? Was it the American invasion, the civil war? Who was responsible for this? Let, let's go back to growing up 
uh, in Iraq. Um, I guess your own memory is totally dominated by Saddam. You didn't know life before Saddam. Um, but what kind of childhood and um, teenage years did you have? I mean, I have to confess, I had the most boring childhood and teenagers. Absolutely, you know. Yes, Saddam dominated every aspect of our lives. Saddam, in my early childhood, I confused Saddam, God, and this Japanese cartoon, Superheroes. And I thought all these are the same person. I, you know, kind of a middle-class family, went to school. Our lives were not affected like other people. None of my family was imprisoned, executed, nor any of them had joined the Ba'ath Party or the army or anything else. So it was an absolute boring life. Yes, it was dominated by the regime, by security forces, by fear. And fear is the most important thing because even if you had done nothing, you're scared. You never say Saddam, you say he. You never criticize the government um, we were affected by the war when rockets were falling on Baghdad, when uh, members of our family went to, you know, conscripted as soldiers and went to the front. So that is the childhood of during the Iran-Iraq war. Then, of course, everything changed after 1991 because that is when the city was bombed thoroughly. The, the Iraq was really went back to the Stone Age. And and then the sanctions, and the sanctions destroyed the society. You, the middle class became poor. The teachers were paid two dollars a month. That is when, you know, of all the wars I've I've seen, I've witnessed, reported on, I've never seen anything as brutal as thirteen years of sanctions. That is that was you know my childhood. And then you find yourself in this country. You you feel trapped. You want to leave because you want to have a life somewhere else. You want to. I was an architect. I wanted to work somewhere else. I want to, but I was trapped in Iraq, like millions of others, couldn't leave the country, and we're waiting to see how life will progress under the rule of this dictator. Will he rule us for another decade or two? Will he, you know, children come to rule after him? That was the prospects of life. And in in the very first chapter of your book, you described the crass questions from Western journalists demanding to know whether people were Sunni or Shia, but your family was neither. Um, look, I grew up in a, you know, in a very secular society. And in my high school, we were 40 kids in the same class. Up until today, I still don't know who, I still don't know the majority of them, the sectarian background of the majority of them, because at that time, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, I don't mean sectarian identity didn't exist in Iraq, but it was a cultural identity, it was a class identity. Someone's being Sunni or Shia didn't matter anymore. So, you know, intermarriages and sectarian marriage, you know, people between Sunnis and Shia getting intermarried, Kurds and Arab intermarried. And then suddenly the war happens, and I started working as a translator. And one of the first questions in every single interview, the journalist would ask, can you ask them if they're Sunnis and Shia? And at the beginning, I didn't understand. What does it mean? If What does it matter if this family, trapped in this situation, talking about a certain story, if they're Sunnis and Shia? Later, I came to realize 
that the dominant narrative that was sold to the West, sold to the Americans by the exiled Iraqi groups who've been campaigning to topple Saddam since the 90s was a sectarian narrative in which part of the populations were victims and the other parties were victimizers. And that that was the most dangerous thing that was happening there. Again, I don't mean Sunnis and Shia were not in conflict. I don't mean the clashes did not happen in Baghdad centuries ago. But that narrative that came after 2003 was the recipe for the civil war that came after. So jumping forward to 2003 and the the second major conflict in uh, Iraq, at that time you were working as a architect. But can you just explain the transition to translator and then journalist? Well, I mean, the Americans did that, not me. I mean, they invaded my country, and then you wake up one day and you find these tanks, these amphibious kind of armored vehicles down in your in your street, and you see all those soldiers with their guns, and it's like suddenly you're transported into inside a movie. And then I followed the soldiers, and again, I stood in the square, and I saw the statue toppled, and next day I walked into the presidential palace. And till today, I don't know why I walked. I thought I really wanted to understand our history. I really wanted to understand why Saddam did what he did. So probably naively, stupidly, I thought, like, if I walk into the palace, I will find the answers. I will find the answers to our, you know, the history of wars. I didn't find any answers. But in the end of the day, I did find a British journalist working for The Guardian, James Meek, and I hitched a ride, and I ended up working as his translator. And, and since then... I've, you know, I abandoned architecture that day and gradually from a translator to a reporter to a journalist. <laughs> I'll come back to that because I, I think it's interesting. I think the, the way that you write is different from how classically trained journalists and the way that you saw things. So we'll come back to that. But you, but you were also taking photographs. Was that a skill that you'd had before the war, or is that just something that you that you found you were good at? So as an architect, I loved walking throughout, you know, through the city, kind of explore the old neighborhoods, and I was taking pictures as part of, you know, documenting the city, documenting the... It's a kind of a street photography. I was more interested in buildings. I hated when people walked into my frame because I just wanted to have the streets and the buildings. So you know how to use a camera, basically. You know how to compose a frame. And then suddenly, instead of taking pictures of buildings, you start taking pictures of car bombs, of clashes, of, you know, militiamen with their guns. And that's how the progress transition happened. And and the book is also full of your drawings, and that presumably was also down to your architectural That's skills. also, yes, I blame architecture for the drawings. <laughs> so for a while, you you mixed, as it were, conventional reporting, what what the newspaper wanted from day to day. But I I knew as an editor that you were always champing at the bit and wanting to write different kinds of off pieces and to get away from the narrative that was perhaps being imposed on 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 the conflicts the conflicts plural. Can you just talk a bit about how you work? So I mean I know this may sound kind of thing because you know, I was you were the 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 editor, but working for the Guardian for the past twenty years. I mean, I was never told what to write, or told to see the conflict in that way or another. 
but the way I wrote, I realized that my I can I can describe what I saw. So kind of mixing this photography with writing. If I have a picture, then I have a story. If I'm sitting in my hotel room and told and I'm told to write about a car bomb or a news, to write 400, 500 words about a story, that would be a nightmare. And I would do everything and I will kick and resist and try to jump out of my hotel room. Just, just explain why. Because I don't know how to write about things I didn't see. I... Probably language-wise, I came to English later, so I know how to describe. Put me in a room with, with gunmen, put me in a you know clash in the streets, put me in front of something happening. And I can describe it. I can tell you the details, I can describe the smells, the colors, and all these things. Put me in a hotel room and tell me to write about that press conference that happened over there, rewrite the wires. And honestly, 20 years later, I still don't know how to do it. I still don't know how to write a a news piece, 600 words, which still makes my editors very furious. But but that's how I came into writing. I mean, I remember the first time, the first proper story I wrote. Well, the first story I wrote was when I ended up in American jail, me and Saddam on the same day. But the actual first story I called... Uh, the G2 editor at the time, and I said, look, I'm going to take pictures of these clashes taking place in three cities in Baghdad. Would you be interested in a kind of a diary and a story about these things? And he said, yes. And I think that how I've been writing for the last 20 years. So describe the period immediately after the invasion. So sooner or later, the, the Western correspondents start drifting away. It becomes a very dangerous city in which to live. What kind of pieces were you writing at the time, and what was the atmosphere in the city? So, again, this is a. There was a time, there was a night in 2007 when I'm staying in a hotel room because, as journalists, you can't stay anymore in a house. You know, regardless if you are a foreigner or an Iraqi, as long as you're identified as a journalist, you are a target for insurgents, for militiamen, for get kidnapping, killing. And I remember one day, one night, 2007. And, uh, and I want to report on the other side of the city. And I realize I can't do it anymore. I have become a stranger in my own city because I can just jump in a taxi and tr- drive around Baghdad. Me, like I, like an, everyone else sitting in that hotel, we needed people to vouch for us, people to take us there. I was trying to write how the city was changing. You know, these are neighborhoods, these are normal neighborhoods with normal people in them teachers, taxi drivers, suddenly they're ruled by militiamen, by gunmen, by with some grand names like the battalions, the armies or whatnot. But they were just kind of gunmen, you know, and most of the killing and the kidnapping they did, they did for money. They used ideology, sectarian ideology, narrative of 1500 years of a Sunni Shia conflict just to, I don't know, to get sanctioned for the crimes that they were doing. They were no more, you know, they were just kind of gangs. And these gangs used religious ideology. And did you encounter people you'd known in a previous life who, in this completely different context, who were behaving in a completely different way? Look, my dream when I when I was going through the names of the my high school friends to find someone, anyone who had become militia commander, a notorious killer, a bandit, anyone who I could, you know used to travel across the city, unless they were all kind of useless doctors, engineers, you know, men. I didn't encounter any of my close friends who had transformed because 
most just fled the city when the violence became too serious. But I encountered a lot of people who started their lives in normal people, let's say. And then because of the war, because of the circumstances of the war, they end up as, again, gangsters, killers, militia commanders. The transition is very easy, Alan. Once you put violence in the streets, you will be surprised how many people will pick up guns and, uh, and, and, and see their lives transformed. After the break, we'll delve further into the details of Ray's fantastic book. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect's content across newsletters, web, app, and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 a month. Visit prospectmagazine or oneword.co.uk and subscribe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, tell me a bit about how you saw your country being reported during this period. So, so most Western correspondents at a time when it became very dangerous to leave the green zone, were reporting from almost within a sort of compound within the country. You've talked a bit about the narrative that you felt was being imposed on this conflict. What was the predominant story that you felt was being written that didn't necessarily match your own feeling? So the predominant narrative was the narrative of this, you know, the, the, you know I, I remember once reading one prominent Western reporter described this, the madness of the people in the city, as if like we're all deranged, we're all kind of become zombies and vampires and killing each other. Later, when I, when I read the works of this German writer, Hans Fallader, you see the similarities. You see how I was comparing Hans Fallader's Berlin in the 30s and 40s to living under ISIS. You know, the majority of the people will just bend their heads and stay inside their homes when they see their neighbors being taken out, being executed, being exiled, or being taken to camps. The same thing happened in Iraq. As we were talking about this violence, I was talking about the sectarian nature of the violence. People had to continue their lives, go to work, 
take their children out of school, navigate these these kind of boundaries of a civil war. That was my frustration. My frustration was when I saw people talking about the Americans as if they were the peacekeepers. They were not peacekeepers. They were an invading army. They were part of the problem. I did not condone violence against the Americans, but I also could not understand why we're not talking about the Americans as a party to a conflict, as, you know, fighters. They were like the jihadis they were fighting, both perpetrating violence and violence on civilians. That was kind of frustrating. There was a like a, a sort of inherent good side, bad side, not the fact that both sides were bad and the good sides were the, the civilians who were suffering from them. And what I think distinguished you as a writer at the time was that you wanted to go and speak to the bad side. I'm making inverted comments here, and almost nobody else was doing that. So, I mean, in not just in Iraq, but in Somalia, Sudan, Libya, you were all over the place, Syria, and your curiosity led you to want to go to speak to the other side. I think it's very important to talk to the other side, whoever they are, regardless of our own uh, you know, political point of view, beliefs. I mean, they are murderers, of course. I mean, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the jihadis, the, sh- the militias, everyone, they were murderers and they were killers. But we need to know why they were killing. I mean, there is nothing called this kind of absolute evil that turns a human being into a killer. There are conditions, there are reasons. They would like us to believe that they've been fighting this, again, primordial war for centuries. But there are reasons. And I, and I, and after, again, 20 years of telling the stories of this conflict in this region, you, I realize that it's not one single big conflict but a combination, a tally of smaller conflicts, conflicts over land, conflicts over money, over tribes, insult, traded, and then leads to a conflict. So the wars we see in the region, they are a combination of a smaller conflict. And unless we understand the smaller conflicts, we cannot solve the bigger issue. Uh, I mean, this this is probably an obvious question to ask, but... uh, your your identity as an Iraqi made it easier, but in some cases, I'm guessing, more difficult to travel around in the way that you wanted to, moving fluidly between the tribes and sect, sectarian groups and warring factions. Of course. I mean, at a certain point, it was easier to be a Western journalist. He's British, she's American, they are French or Italian. Once you're an Iraqi, you're put in a pigeonhole and you're instantly, you need to define your sect, your tribe, your ethnicity. And that makes it very difficult. If you want to tell the story of every single party of this conflict, you need to, you know, to cross these boundaries. And at one point, because of the civil war conditions, I was traveling across Baghdad with three ID cards, all of them fake, I have to say. And and depends on which side of the city you are, you, you change your uh, your ID card. The challenge was how to identify those gunmen standing at the end of the street with their guns. How do you identify? Because all Iraqis look the same, you know? So you, we don't have a special kind of markings for Sunnis and Shia. And that is, and that's another skill you, not only I, but every single Baghdadi developer is how to read the signs, what are the facial hair, the length of the trousers, the pictures on the checkpoint on the wall, even the change in the accent. 
And these decisions will be, you know, your life dependent on these decisions. If you show the wrong ID card to the wrong checkpoint, you might as well just... Uh, how, how would you describe your appetite for risk at this point? Me, risk? I mean, I mean I, I've once signed a, a paper saying I will not do anything but report on birds for six months. Look, I mean, yes, I risk becomes part of the... I remember one at one point, if you were here bullets down the streets, you run towards that source of... Towards the source. Towards the source. people might run away. Yeah, because then you need to know who's firing at what, and you need to know what is the story. I would say I am much more cautious now. I would walk towards the source of the bullets because you need to still tell the story. I mean, you know more than anyone else how certain kind of stories ended in, in total misadventure. And uh, but it's it's well, we might just relive one or two of those. So in, in 2009, you you disappeared in East Afghanistan. Yes, in 2009, I was greedy. I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I were instead of spending. I've got you to confess it. Uh, yes, no, absolutely. I, instead of spending two or three days with the Taliban or interviewing a Taliban commander, I wanted to go inside and spend time there and observe them in their lives. And that was absolutely misadventure and ended up being kidnapped by a freelancing gang Taliban group. We were absolutely lucky that we were not taken across the borders, the mountains, and sold in Pakistan, where, which, would hap- which happened to other journalists. Then a year later... How frightening was that? How frightening was that? And, it, and what kept you alive? I and mean, what skills did you have in forming bonds with the people who kidnapped you? So, so you know, they are gangsters, but they are or ta- or fighters or whatever, and they are poor. And, and, and they come from a very strong religious ideology. But God bless them. They've memorized the Quran, but they don't know how to read it. So I, I am an Arab. I speak Arabic. I speak the language of the Quran. And that is, is an asset. So you become this kind of weird, build this weird relationship with those guys that you are their prisoner, but at the same time you have more authority than they are over this text because I can read the text and they cannot read the text. And of course, I had committed the mistake of not taking a book with me, so I spent two weeks there without anything to read. And that was a mistake I learned in my next adventure. In 2010, you disappeared again. Tell us about that. That was not my fault this time. (laughs) This was the Americans who kind of landed somewhere. We also were meeting the Taliban, the Americans kind of came, raided a house nearby. Someone tipped them that there was a high-value target, whether the Arab was the high-value target or the Taliban commander I met. And the Taliban were suspicious of us as journalists because they thought we had tipped the Americans. Of course, we were imprisoned for five days in a barn. But this time, I was prepared. I had taken war and peace with me. And although we were chained to the wall... I would read War and Peace from early dawn to to sunset, and that was that was the best book to take with you if you're kidnapped by the Taliban. Would be War and Peace. And then 2011, you disappeared again. 2011, this time was my mistake again because <laughs> I pushed. Uh, I was pushing very quickly. I had because of my Iraqi passport, I had not 
been able to uh, to witness one of the most important events, I think, in modern Arab history, which is the uprising in Cairo, the uprising in Tunis. So that frustration mixed with some not very well-informed decisions pushed me to go deeper and deeper into Libya very fast rather than stick to the places that, you know, I was protected in the mountains by people from the mountains. When I went into the lowlands, the people of the mountains had no authority and I was quickly captured. And you know what's the hardest thing? You know, I spent... I don't know, nearly two weeks in a small cell, blindfolded, not tortured, not beaten, nothing happened to me, but the fear was enormous. But the worst thing was when I was led out of the cell, taken into this building, when the blindfolds were removed, and I saw you sitting there. I almost <laughs> wanted to go back to the cell, take me back. So you came, thank you, you you negotiated my release, and that was, that was a moment. And since then, I've been... I've been telling myself, been yes, I've been, because I don't want to see Alan Rasputin again, kind of waiting in a Mukhawarat building in Libya. But, you know, in many times, it's pure luck. I mean, in the book, I describe crossing one ISIS checkpoint. We went to the ISIS office, and we asked for permission, and they took our passport details, and they even offered us tea and talked to us. I was, you know, was terrified. I thought, like, they would never let us go. However, they did. and But after that, many journalists kind of passed, were kidnapped around that same checkpoint, that same region. So that was pure luck. We managed to cross that checkpoint, others didn't. But usually, uh, it, it's kind of the, it's the setup you have on the ground. Who will protect you there? And that's very important. Talk a bit about the structure of the book. Some of it you tell through individual portraits of people. There's the the spy, there's your school friend Hassan, the scenes you saw in the psychiatrist clinic, the passport cues. Just tell me about what 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 led you to include these um, snapshots, these vignettes, and 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 uh, why you chose them. So the book kind of almost have to timelines, my own timeline as a as an Iraqi, as someone who grew up in Baghdad, so the background, the history, the I really wanted to portray life in Baghdad as we saw it as as Iraqis, not as the mad dictator. But the mad dictator was very boring, you know. I mean he was mad dictator, was killing people, but for us it was his boredom that was killing us because he would appear on TV again and again, rate talk and speeches that meant nothing. So so that was one timeline, the timeline of the city, of how the city itself is evolving from the smaller city in the 80s, 70s, into a bigger city in the 80s, all the way to the, to the division and the fragmentation of the city after 2003. The other timeline, let's say, was the timeline of war. And, and I tried to tell the war through characters and places. Uh, you know, all these characters, you... These are characters who, did, did, in one way or another, were, were trying to negotiate the boundaries of a civil war. How do you survive in a city? How do you get a passport? How do you become a fighter? How do you kidnap? And how do you get your kidnapped release? How do you, you know, live a normal life as a doctor in the city? Later on in the book, the cities themselves become become the story. So Baghdad, a city divided, uh, a city 
torn by car bombs, um, the Arab Spring, and different cities in Iraq and Syria. And here, there is a third kind of, if we say, a timeline, which is, I call it the first civil war in Iraq, which ends around 2008-9, and then the second civil war, which culminates in ISIS taking over and the Battle of Mosul in 2017-18. I was going to come on to Mosul. So what, what was your experience? How did you experience the, the fall of Mosul? The fall of Mosul was one of the, you know, was one of the biggest uh, events that happened in Iraq because Mosul fell and within a few days, ISIS, you know, attack units were on the outskirts of Baghdad and it felt that a huge massacre would ensue if these, you know, forces managed to breach the outskirts of Baghdad. That was a huge moment. And from 2014 until 2017, this slow and relentless war pushing ISIS back further and further north of the city. I mean, of course, Iranian played a role, Iraqi army forces played a role, militias, Americans, special forces, French, British, everyone was taking part in this war against against ISIS. So it felt... It felt as you know as, as one continuous battle from 2014 till 2017, culminating, of course, in this brutal, brutal battle in the streets of the old city. You're a stranger in your own city. How often do you go back now, and what's your experience of Baghdad when you go back now? I go frequently. Uh, Baghdad is different. Baghdad is now a let's say, not at peace, but there is a state of no war in, in Baghdad. There are markets, there are malls, there are restaurants, people get in and out, but the conditions for a future conflicts are there. You know, Iraq exports oil, you know, Iraq has a budget of $100, $120 billion a year of oil money, and yet the poverty in certain parts of Baghdad you know, it's, it's on par with some of the worst, the poorest countries in the world. And that social uh, divide between the kleptocratic kind of elites, the warlords, the militia commanders, half of them sitting now in the parliament, and the rest of the population, that is going to breed the next conflict and unless something major happens now. So, um, I mean... I always talk about accountability and accountability. You know, in my recent trip to Baghdad, I'm trying to write about what's happening 20 years later. And I meet this guy whose name became synonymous with the worst of the killing during the first sectarian war. And and he's now driving around the city, kind of positioning himself as this kind of uh, benevolent benefactor, kind of, kind of giving money to widows and children and whatnot. And then as we're driving, as he's showing me the scenes of his fights against the Americans, we go into this kind of side car park, and he shows me 20 armored vehicles. So I'm keeping them until I need them. This is the reality of Iraq. You know, there's so many weapons stashed, hidden, uh, controlled by militias, controlled by tribes, controlled by gangs. These weapons will not disappear. They will come out when their owners think they can use them to achieve a difference. And what's the nature of trauma in the country? You know, I realize that trauma doesn't disappear. And the trauma of Saddam's conflict, brutality, re-emerged during the civil war in 2003. The traumas 
of an American occupation invasion re-emerged also after that. And when, during the Battle of Mosul, when I saw officers and soldiers doing kind of some of the worst torture, you know, torturing their prisoners, suspected ISIS members, and so brutally. And when I asked them, why are you torturing them? Don't you want something? Don't you want to hear a confession, extract information? They would tell me, no, we're torturing them for the purpose of torturing them. And that is the legacy of the trauma. That's when ISIS succeeded, where it fa- ISIS failed militarily, but, militarily, but it succeeded in planting its own brutality in their opponents. So uh, that's the legacy of the trauma of decades of war. And of course, the Americans are not to, to be blamed here because that legacy of trauma goes back further on. What the Americans did is probably exacerbated a, a situation that was already there. Does it feel now that the world's attention has moved on. So everyone's writing the 20-year-old piece now, but <clears throat> the world's concentration is now on uh, Ukraine. And we, we, in a sense, of, can be guilty of being accused of, of forgetting. Does that, does that, does that how it strikes you? Absolutely. What? I mean, it, it strikes me as, you know, when you see the... United the United Nations General Secretary going to Baghdad and posing for pictures with people who had committed, you know, crimes and and you know, Russia invading Ukraine and and, and you know the, the most thing that you always hear about is you know Putin kind of pointing out that the American invasion of Iraq as if a you know a crime in one place can legitimize another crime in an, another place that is the legacy of the war in you know without accountability the same mistake would be repeated and and people would not um people would be repeating the same mistake people would be um using the pretext of what the Americans did in Iraq to legitimize their own wars and their own conflicts and their own aggressions what do you think accountability looks like you know 20 years later none of the people who ordered the war executed the war foreigners or Iraqis, people who killed civilians, none of them had come out and said, we are sorry for what we did to Iraq, you know. I didn't hear that word, sorry, from anyone, Iraqi or foreigners, from that militia commander I met in Baghdad with his 20 armored vehicles, to a former president, a former prime minister. Accountability is telling the truth, is letting history learn from the mistakes. I don't want people to go to jail. And I, I don't think anyone will go to jail for, for sending tens of thousands of soldiers to invade another country. But I want history to be told properly. Because if we know history, then hopefully one day we don't repeat it again. And finally, what contribution do you think writing and journalism has in telling that history, in, in getting the history straight? I think journalists often delude themselves by thinking they can you know, change a situation or a change. Sometimes that happens and it's amazing. And we've seen the power of journalism and and independent journalism. Mm -hmm. However, the best of what we can do is to be witness, to go into the end of the street and see who's firing the bullets and tell that story. What, What other form of accountability? I mean, how else is that story going to be told? I mean, you're, you're, this is raw history in the making. It, it's you know the the worst of it is is twenty years old, 
how how is it being captured and documented so that future generations will know? The sad thing is people tend to forget very quickly. So one of the one of the most depressing things in Iraq at the moment is democracy has as an idea has felt victim to that war of 2003 because people associate democracy with corruption, associate a parliament with this bunch of corrupt politicians and people, young people did not see, did not live under Saddam, will have a yearning now to the strong leader because at least they hear that under the strong leader people had electricity had water, which is a narrative played by every single strongman now in, in the world, that then the narrative of the strongman we can achieve, if you, if you just don't mind democracy and your freedom we will give you electricity and water and security and that is a very dangerous thing because and that is a victim for not telling the history properly for not teaching the history people forget what happened under saddam because they saw so much brutality happening after saddam that they tend to forget that as if again the whole idea of one crime can you know make another crime sound uh, seem very acceptable so I'm still not quite clear who is able to document this. If it, I mean, I completely get what you're saying about journalists that we're not yet at a time, maybe never will be, to have any kind of truth and reconciliation commission. So who is actually collecting the archive of witness and and the facts so that when when history does get to be written, it's not simply written by American historians. The, the One of the saddest facts, so I wrote this book, I've been working on this book for you know nearly a decade. To, till today, I don't know how many people died because of this war. How many Iraqis died from 2003 until today? The UN stopped counting a long time ago. How many people died in Mosul, in the Battle of Mosul? How many civilians died? We don't know. How many people died during the sanctions? There is a number, half a million, but is that the accurate number? See, these are all facts these are kind of like very simple facts. A dead person is a number. We don't know these numbers because people stop paying attention to the history, to the Iraq, to the event. So who collects the all of us? I think I think that the job of a journalist is to witness history, to write the accounts of history, to try to you know give her his version of the events on the ground, maybe to counter the the a more prevailing narrative pushed by a, you know, a superpower. Today you're living in Istanbul. You're older, you're wiser, you're, you don't go on these crazy missions and cause your editor sleepless nights. Um, what, what are the stories that you think you'll be telling in the next five years? Where, where do you think you're going to be taken to in, in, in that region? So in that region, I think the region is facing, as I said, like this, the social divide is huge, but also the environmental collapse. I mean, one of the things you start seeing that rivers are drying and and there is a time where, you know, this whole Mesopotamia, the Tigris and Euphrates, will at one point stop flowing, you know, all the way to the sea. What will that cause? What are the conflicts that will emerge from that environmental collapse? And and I and again the sad thing is like no one's paying attention. People are thinking of you know selling more oil, kind of 
building something else. But that is the real challenge facing Iraq, facing the region in general, which is the, the conflicts emerging from environmental collapse, which is happening right in front of our eyes. Well, I wish we could think of a more cheerful end to, the, uh, to this <laughs> podcast, but that's very much the story. It, the book is called A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. It's published by Hutchinson Heinemann, and I can't recommend it too strongly. Thank you, Rates, for coming in. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please grab a copy of the latest issue of Prospect Magazine, which includes reporting from Dizzy Porter in Iraq. Uh, there's a wonderful portrait of Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan by the journalist Attica Raymond. And there's a searing analysis by Martin Percy of why the forthcoming coronation could be problematic for the Church of England. So goodbye, thank you for joining us, and listen out for a new episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.